Hi everyone, I'm Alicia, one of the third-year internal medicine residents at the University of Utah. In today's episode on Primary Care Anywhere, we are going to be talking about menopause. We are basing today's discussion off of the Annals of Internal Medicine in the clinic article on menopause originally published in July of this year. Let's start with a clinical vignette. So we have Mrs. Flash here in clinic. She is a 57-year-old female with a past medical history of type 2 diabetes, obesity, hypothyroidism, and depression, who comes in complaining of daily hot flashes. She states that during the day, she is having episodes of sweating and chills. These episodes usually last for 5 to 10 minutes. She feels embarrassed because her face gets really flushed at work. During the night, she is sweating through bed sheets. She feels really tired from her poor sleep. She tells you her last period was two years ago. On further history, you learn that she has a family history of breast cancer in her mother and an aunt, but she does not have a history of breast cancer herself. She denies any history of blood clots, heart disease, or stroke. She has a surgical history of gallbladder removal, but denies any past gynecological surgeries like hysterectomy. She interrupts your history taking and asks bluntly if you can give her a prescription for estrogen. So how do we define menopause? Well, it is the cessation of the menstrual cycle and the end of a female's reproductive years. It is defined retrospectively 12 months after the final menstrual period. Prior to this is the perimenopause stage, which involves progressive irregularity in menstrual cycles. It is unfortunately difficult to predict the final menstrual period, but data suggests that when there is at least two months of amenorrhea, one can expect their final menstrual period within the next five years. The most common symptoms of menopause are vasomotor, or in other words, hot flashes. These symptoms are reported by 80% of menopausal women. Of note, the prevalence and severity of hot flashes gradually increases from perimenopause and peaks during the four years after the final menstrual period. On a positive note, symptom prevalence and severity then gradually decreases thereafter. The other common symptom of menopause involves the genitourinary system. Following menopause, vaginal atrophy occurs, which can lead to dryness, discomfort, itching, and painful intercourse or dyspareunia. These are called genitourinary symptoms of menopause and occur in one-third to one-half of menopausal women. Of note, mood, cognitive, and sleep disturbances are some other common symptoms women complain of, but these symptoms have not been conclusively linked to the hormonal changes of menopause. Alright, now that we have defined menopause, I am going to have my co-resident, Kim, tell you about diagnostics. In this next section, we will talk about how menopause is diagnosed. First, I'd like to start off by emphasizing that menopause is a clinical diagnosis. It's made by obtaining a thorough history of menstrual changes and the typical symptoms that we just discussed, like hot flashes, night sweats, and vaginal dryness. And it occurs in a woman of the appropriate age, typically greater than 45 years old. It is defined retrospectively, typically 12 months after the final menstrual period. 
You typically don't need labs to make the diagnosis, but there are situations in which labs can be helpful to differentiate menopause from other conditions. For example, drawing an FSH level in patients with underlying menstrual disorders such as PCOS, in patients with a history of hysterectomy or a history of endometrial ablation, FSH can be helpful to confirm menopause. In menopause, FSH levels will be elevated greater than 30. However, FSH can fluctuate during perimenopause, so women aged less than 40, you may need two to three levels in order to confirm the diagnosis. FSH levels are best checked on day three of the cycle. You should also note that women taking exogenous hormones, such as hor hormonal contraceptives, FSH levels are unreliable and should only be measured two to four weeks after oral contraceptives are discontinued. It's also important to note that vasomotor symptoms, such as hot flashes and night sweats, are not unique to menopause, and so it's important to rule them out from other causes. That's where other helpful lab tests come into play. Some of these include a beta-HCG or pregnancy test. Though it's unlikely in this age group, pregnancy can occur. It can also be helpful to get a TSH to help rule out hypo or hyperthyroidism. And finally, it can be helpful to get an endometrial biopsy in women greater than 45 years old or in women less than 45 years old with additional risk factors for unopposed estrogen, such as obesity or chronic ovulatory dysfunction. This can be used to rule out endometrial hyperplasia or cancer as a cause of abnormal uterine bleeding. So to conclude, menopause is a clinical diagnosis based on menstrual history and symptomatology. There are certain scenarios, as we discussed above, in which labs can be helpful in differentiating menopause from other conditions, but typically labs are not necessary to make the diagnosis. On to the next section. Hey everybody, this is Alex Montoya. I am an internal medicine intern at University of Utah Hospital, just here to talk a little bit more about menopause. So I'm going to be covering the initial approach to treatment, um, kind of once you've made the diagnosis, you know, what do you do next? So the first major decision point to note when initiating therapy for menopause is the presence or absence of vasomotor symptoms. And again, those include things like hot flashes or night sweats. So in the absence of vasomotor symptoms, treatment typically starts with tackling genitourinary symptoms with topical vaginal lubricants, moisturizers, and those are typically your first-line agents. Now, if symptoms are still not well-controlled with these agents, then you can consider things like topical vaginal estrogen. With the presence of vasomotor symptoms, the next step is to determine the severity as well as the candidacy for hormone therapy. So, touching a little bit on severity, severity is determined by the impact on normal activities. So, mild being, you know, symptoms have no interference with day-to-day -day activities, moderate being some interference, and severe being that symptoms are so bothersome that some daily activities are unable to be performed. Mild symptoms can usually be approached initially with lifestyle modifications alone, though these modifications are certainly also applicable in addition to other treatments with moderate to severe symptoms. Some of the lifestyle modifications that have been shown to have some improvements of symptoms include quitting or reducing smoking. Um, smoking has been associated with worse or more frequent vasomotor symptoms, uh, as well as working towards a healthy weight, as there have been some studies demonstrating association with obesity 
and increased vasomotor symptoms as well. Um, as such, these are typically goals that we should work towards with all of our patients, but it's certainly worth counseling patients on just so that they are aware. When moderate to severe vasomotor symptoms are present, the next question is to address candidacy for hormonal therapy. Some of the absolute contraindications to hormonal therapy are things like pregnancy, active liver disease, immobilization, history of breast or endometrial cancer, any history of coronary artery disease or stroke, thromboembolic disease, and hypertriglyceridemia. If no contraindications are found, then it comes down to an assessment of risk. Patients that are greater than or equal to 60 years of age or patients with greater than 10 years since the onset of menopause with moderate risk for breast cancer or cardiovascular disease or individuals with a high baseline risk for breast cancer and cardiovascular disease may not be good candidates for therapy due to excess risk are likely not good candidates for hormonal therapy and should consider non-hormonal treatment. Patients greater than or equal to 60 or greater than 10 years out from menopause, or those outside of those timeframes with a baseline moderate risk of breast cancer and cardiovascular disease may still be candidates for hormonal therapy, but with a shared risk-benefit discussion. And that ends my section on how to approach treatment for menopause. Thanks, Alex, for that awesome breakdown on how to approach treatment for menopausal symptoms. Now that we know that hormone therapy is an option for our patients with moderate to severe symptoms associated with menopause, let's review the risks and benefits of hormone therapy so that we can have more informed discussions with our patients. It's necessary to have a risks and benefits discussion for any woman that we're considering starting hormone therapy for, but I think it's a particularly important for patients with higher baseline risk, including those who are over 60 years old, who are more than 10 years out from the start of menopause, those with moderate risk for breast cancer, and finally those that we know already have cardiovascular disease. The degree of risk depends on a number of factors, and these include the hormone therapy dose, duration, route of administration, timing of administration, and whether we're using combined hormone therapy or estrogen alone. We'll get into the different hormone therapy formulations and dosing next, but first we can review the short and long-term risks of hormone therapy. In counseling patients on adverse effects of hormone therapy in the short term, be sure to advise them that they can anticipate breast tenderness and uterine bleeding. Less common short-term effects include nausea, vomiting, headaches, weight change, and dizziness. Most of your risk-benefit discussion should be focused on the long-term effects of hormone therapy. These include heart disease, stroke, VTE, breast cancer, cognition, bone health, and mortality. So let's get into it. We can start with cardiovascular disease. The risk of coronary heart disease depends on the timing of, of therapy initiation. In women who initiate hormone therapy within 10 years of menopause onset, data suggests that there is actually a reduced risk of coronary heart disease. However, the risk for coronary heart disease is increased in those who initiate hormone therapy greater than 10 years from menopause onset. It's important to note that there is no significant difference in mortality from coronary heart disease in those on therapy versus those who are not on hormone therapy. Next, let's talk about stroke and VTE risk. 
According to data from the Women's Health Initiative, there is an increased risk of stroke and venous thromboembolic events in women treated with both estrogen-only hormone therapy and combined hormone therapy. The greatest risk is, again, in women who are on therapy more than 10 years from menopause onset. Importantly, there is no evidence of increased stroke or VTE risk in those using low-dose vaginal therapy, and the risk is lower in those using transdermal estrogen formulations. Another long-term risk of hormone therapy that your patients will be curious about is the risk for breast cancer. For patients without a uterus, you can assure them that there is no clinically significant increased risk of breast cancer associated with estrogen therapy. However, in those that do have an intact uterus who use combination hormone therapy, there is an increased risk for invasive breast cancer diagnosed at a more advanced stage. Additional long-term effects associated with hormone therapy include effects on cognition, bone health, and overall mortality. In general, cognition is not affected when hormone therapy is initiated early in young postmenopausal women with normal baseline cognition. There's data from the Women's Health Initiative that supports an increased risk of dementia, however, for women on hormone therapy over the age of 65. In terms of bone health, hormone therapy reduces the risk of osteoporotic fractures, though the, pro the protective effect weans once therapy is discontinued, so that's something to counsel your patients on. Finally, we do have long-term data from the Women's Health Initiative that does not support any difference in all-cause mortality or mortality from breast cancer or coronary heart disease in those with and without hormone therapy. I hope this information helps guide you in your next patient-centered discussions regarding hormone therapy for menopause. Next, let's hear about the different formulations and dosage options for therapy. Hey everyone, it's Austin Poth, just coming here to talk to you about the next segment in this podcast, which is about hormone therapy for treatment of menopause. Um, just to discuss, uh, the first thing that you need to do when starting hormone therapy is deciding whether you need to do combination therapy or if you can do estrogen therapy alone. Combination therapy is specifically when people have a uterus. If you have a uterus, uh, and you don't do combination therapy, uh, you'll end up having unopposed estrogen, which increases your endometrial cancer risk. So anyone with a uterus needs combination hormone therapy. Uh, if you don't have a uterus, then you can actually just do estrogen therapy alone. Now, once you start it, there's a couple different formulations that you can use. Oral is very common, um, but some of the things you need to watch out for uh, is oral formulations increase the thyroid binding globulin. So people with hypothyroidism might actually need increased doses of their levothyroxine in order to continue treating them appropriately. The transdermal patches are something uh, a little newer that have come into favor because they're very easy. You apply them one or twice a week. Um, and they also have lower risk of stroke and VTE compared to oral formulations. Um, they're also good for women with low libido because it has less uh, side of, or excuse me, less effects on sex hormone binding globulin and free testosterone levels. Uh, so it can be a good uh, good option for patients where low libido is a concern. Now, once they're started, you can either do cyclic or continuous regimens. Cyclic are going to be a bit more physiologic. You'll have a, a periodic withdrawal bleeding. Uh, and it can also be good for patients who are unable to tolerate a continuous regimen if they have bothersome irregular bleeding. Uh, a continuous regimen works well as well, but uh, basically it'll just end up resulting in amenorrhea. In terms of dosing, 
there's some evidence that a low-dose regimen is less effective for vasomotor symptoms compared to the standard dose, but uh, the difference between them is actually very small, uh, and there's, no, there's not a lot of data in terms of the long-term side effects if low-dose regimens are safer long-term than standard dose, but those are still being looked into. In terms of duration for treatment, so it's recommended to use the lowest effective dose for the shortest amount of time. Uh, for combination therapy, we start to see an increase specifically in breast cancer risk around the five-year mark. So if a patient is on combination therapy and they're nearing the five-year mark, it's good to have a risk-to-benefit discussion about continuing the therapy versus discontinuing it or switching to a non-hormonal therapy. Uh, if a patient is just on estrogen therapy alone, uh, what we tend to shoot for is about 10 years. So 10 years, or if the patient is nearing 60 years old, have that risk-to-benefit discussion. It's not so much about breast cancer risk, but maybe more VTE risk or other side effects of hormonal therapy. Uh, if a patient decides they want to stop it, there's not actual consensus about whether it needs to be tapered or if it can be stopped abruptly. Uh, it, it's going to end up being a little bit of patient preference for that. But that's kind of hormonal therapy in a nutshell. There's different estrogens and different progestins that are used. Uh, and so that's a little bit beyond the scope of this, but that is an overview of the hormonal therapies. Uh, the final thing I'll talk about is the non-hormonal therapies. And there's a few different ones that are used. So there's SSRIs and SNRIs, which are one of the first non-hormonal uh, therapies that are used. Um, these are very good because they have less side effects than some of the hormonal therapies. They are less effective with vasomotor symptoms, but still do help vasomotor symptoms. So definitely a good option. Not all SSRIs and SNRIs are created equally, however. Sertraline and fluoxetine do not have as much data behind them compared to things such as citalopram, escitalopram, and venlafaxine, so just something to note. <clears throat> Gabapentin and pregabalin are also used a lot. Um, these are specifically very good since drowsiness is a side effect. Some physicians will prescribe these for women who have very predominant nocturnal symptoms uh, so that they can just kind of sleep through it. And then one final uh, pharmacotherapy option is clonidine. Uh, it is not as effective as the other options and, of course, carries a lot of the side effect risk of clonidine, so not prescribed very frequently. The last thing that I'll just mention here are some complementary alternative medicines. Um, as you can imagine, a lot of the supplements are not really well studied, uh, so it's hard to get a lot of good data on these, but there is some data for CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, and clinical hypnosis. Um, they have level one evidence as being effective for menopause, and they also carry very little risk. Uh, and so certainly something that you can add uh, to the arsenal of things to treat menopause, since a lot of people will inquire about uh, different supplements and different you know, non-pharmacologic therapies that they can use. And so there are a lot of different options out there. There's just not a whole lot of data on them, so it makes going through it a little difficult. But that is treatment for menopause, both hormonal and non-hormonal therapy, kind of in a nutshell. Going back to Mrs. Flash and our clinical vignette, she does not have any absolute contraindications to hormone replacement therapy. However, with her family history of breast cancer, it will be important to have a risk-benefit conversation with her. 
It will be important to counsel her that combination hormone therapy does increase risk for invasive breast cancer. It will be important to note that breast cancer risk becomes clinically significant at five years of use. So at the five-year mark, the discussion of stopping combination hormone therapy or switching to non-hormonal options should be planned. You can also mention that her hot flash severity usually peaks during the four years after menopause and symptom severity usually decreases thereafter. So to wrap up this episode with some pearls. It is important to note that menopause is a clinical diagnosis. One should use a patient-centered, personalized approach when prescribing hormone therapy, and a risk-benefit discussion should happen. If your patient has an intact uterus, combination therapy should be used. Finally, one should prescribe the lowest effective dose for the shortest period of time. Emphasize to patients that vasomotor symptoms peak during the first four years after menopause, but gradually improves thereafter. All right, that's a wrap for today's episode. 